Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks, Joe. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. Um, Welcome, if you're new as well. Let me have my welcome to Andrew's. As I've been preparing uh, for this morning, a person who has been in my mind is somebody called Lizzie. Now, I haven't seen Lizzie for about 15 years now, but I remember her from my time at secondary school. We both moved from uh, different schools to join a new sixth form for a couple of years. Uh, I'd moved from a big uh, comprehensive school nearby. She'd moved from a small uh, Christian school. And now we were there together in the same uh, sixth form, uh, studying in the same class. Now, it's a typical sixth form environment, lots of people striving to get ahead, lots of people trying to work out who they were, um, actually quite a lot of gossip and, and, and unkindness that went on behind people's backs. But it di- didn't take me long to realize that Lizzie was somebody who was very different. She was quiet, she was unassuming, she's certainly not the center of attention. But I remember watching her before lunch every day, silently bowing her head and giving thanks for her food. I remember watching her show kindness to people, even as she was ridiculed and excluded by people who thought she was strange. One thing that stands out to me about Lizzie was her end-of-year comments in her sixth form, in our sixth form yearbook. I don't know whether you're familiar with those kind of books where you you get asked a series of questions, there's a photo of you in there. The question that was in there was, where would you like to be in 10 years' time. Most of the students had written about their grand ambitions to earn lots of money and conquer the world. Um, But this this is what Lizzie said. She wrote, I'd love to work in a library for a few years 
and then get married and raise a family. But most of all, I want to live my life for the glory of God. Now, you can imagine as people opened the end-of-year book and read her comments, you can imagine the laughs that um, she received and the ridicule that she received from that comment. But it strikes me, looking back on Lizzie's life, that she knew what life was about. I think school was very tough for Lizzie, like it might be for some um, of you uh, here, here today who are still at school. But all the while, she lived out a quiet confidence in the Lord. She was patient, she was kind when she was rejected. She had a joyful love for Jesus that shone through. In many ways, I think, she was living out the kind of life that Peter commends to us in his letter. In this letter, we read about the kind of suffering and persecution that Peter's readers were going through as they received this letter. And it wasn't the kind of extreme persecution that you might hear about around the world. They weren't facing imprisonment or death. But the persecution was real. People were insulting them. People were misunderstanding them. People were laughing at them. People were accusing them of doing wrong. People were speaking maliciously about their good behavior in Christ. People were urging them to turn their backs on Jesus and join in with the way of the world. And it's those kind of trials, I think, that maybe we're more familiar with um, here in our country and that can easily wear Christians down. Just listen to how Elliot Clark puts it in his book, Evangelism as Exiles. He writes this. The reality is feelings of shame and abandonment are among the most difficult for those facing exile. It may not be overt persecution that crushes your spirit or tamps down your witness. It can simply be the shame of having those closest to you consider you to be foolish, ignorant, arrogant, or misguided. Or it can be the threat of isolation, of being uninvited, unrecognized, or unwanted. I wonder if you've ever felt those kind of feelings of shame or abandonment simply for being a Christian. If so, I wonder what your response is. Is it anger, retreat, shame, fear? Well, the letter of 1 Peter shows us a different response, a response of confidence and assurance and joy, because we know who we are, we know to whom we belong, and we know where we're going. We're going to hear God speak to us today, reminding us of who we are. We are a new family built on Christ with a glorious purpose. That's what we're going to see in our verses today. Firstly, we are a new family. Have a look with me at verses 1 to 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, if you've been here over the past few weeks, you might remember that one of the big themes in Peter's letter is this idea of new birth. We um, heard it right at the start of the meeting as Andrew read those verses from uh, chapter 1, verse 3. In God's great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We also read at the end of chapter 1, verse 23, um, how this new birth has come about. I wonder if you remember chapter 1, verse 23. We've been born again through the living and enduring words of God. We're born again by believing the message of Jesus Christ. And you see how Peter continues that metaphor now into chapter 2. And he says, with this new birth comes new desires, 
New family values, we might say. First of all, verse 1, we will have a desire to rid ourselves of all kinds of evil, to strip away these behaviours that he mentions in verse 1, to cast them off like you'd cast off a pair of old clothes, because this is not who we are anymore, and this is not who we want to be. I wonder if you can see that these behaviours in verse 1 are the opposite of what we saw at the end of chapter 1. Let's have a look at chapter 1, verse 22 with me. Peter said there, We've obeyed the truth so that we have sincere love for one another. Therefore, love one another deeply from the heart. Love at full stretch, as we were thinking about last week. This is the DNA of God's new family. This is the new family value that shapes everything. It's sincere love for one another. But the behaviour in chapter 2, verse 1, is the very opposite of love, isn't it? These behaviours have their root in our hearts again, but they destroy relationships rather than build relationships up. Malice, hypocrisy, envy, slander. These are the things that tear relationships apart, aren't they? This is not our DNA. These are not our family values. And so if we're going to do what Peter said last week and love sincerely, love one another from the heart... Then the other side of the coin here is to rid ourselves of these things we read in chapter 2, verse 1. It's worth asking ourselves, isn't it? If people were to eavesdrop on our conversations or perhaps be a fly on the wall in our dinner table uh, chats or to see inside our hearts, would they conclude that we have a sincere love for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or would they instead see malice and hypocrisy and the like? Well, if that's the negative desires we need to get rid of, Peter now turns to the positive desire that marks out the new people of God. Verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So do you see how the metaphor of new birth now carries on into these verses? We're likened as Christians to newborn babies. And that's not a description just for the start of the Christian life, but throughout the Christian life. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Now, if you've ever been around a newborn baby who is ready for their milk, then you'll understand something of the sense of these words. I've told this story to our students before, but I remember a time when our third child, Harry, was just a few days old. We had to go back into hospital um, for Natty to have an appointment with the doctor. We were living in London um, at the time, so this was a, a big North London hospital that we were in, and it was my job to look after Harry while Natalie was seeing the doctor. started really well. Harry was asleep in the pram. I went down to the cafe on the ground floor, got a cup of coffee, enjoyed some time with my new son, But time ticked on, and the appointment continued for a lot longer than expected, and Harry began to stir. I tried all the normal tricks, you know, rock him faster, turn him away from the light so the light's not in his eyes, try and go as fast as possible to keep him asleep. Um, But it really did feel like a ticking time bomb about to go off. And after a short while, it it, it did go off, or he did go off. (laughs) He began to scream and scream and I had no way of getting him to his normal milk supply because Nat was still in the, um, in the appointment. So there I was as a dad, you know, everyone staring at me thinking, why is he so cruel to his child? And I was literally running around the hospital trying to find some milk for my new baby. There was none in the shop downstairs, there was none in the ward where Nat was having her appointment. I must have tried four or five different places before a nurse finally sat me down in a room, gave me some formula milk, and I could feed my son. Newborn babies crave milk, don't they? 
and they will scream and they will scream until they get it. And Peter says, have that in mind as you picture a Christian believer, brought to new birth by the word of God, now craving pure spiritual milk. With that picture in mind, what is the milk and why should we crave it? Well, I think the surrounding context helps us to understand this little phrase, pure spiritual milk. Remember what we've just seen at the end of chapter one. The word of God that was preached to us has given us new birth. It has started our Christian lives. And that same word now sustains the Christian life. The pure milk here is the milk of God's words. And Peter says, crave it like a newborn baby craves milk. When you're a baby, milk isn't an optional extra, is it, in your life? No, it's your life source. Without it, you'll be malnourished, immature, incomplete. Well, Peter says that is what the word of God is to the people of God. By it, verse 2, we grow. We grow up into our salvation. We become more and more mature. Our hope for the future grows. But without it, we'll be malnourished, immature, incomplete. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you'll be used to preachers telling you that the word of God is important to your Christian life. You might be letting these verses just wash over you without much thought. But I think verse 3 gives us a fresh way why we should crave God's word like newborn babies. A really helpful way in verse 3. Have a look at verse 3 with me. We have now tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I think that's a really interesting word to use here. uh, The word taste. Peter could have written, you've understood now that the Lord is good, couldn't he? And now you've understood that, uh, crave more understanding. But instead he he uses words from Psalm 34 and he likens the word of God to to a banquet. We've tasted the Lord's goodness as we've heard his word. We've experienced the delight of knowing him. And so we crave the word now because we crave the Lord and we want to taste his goodness again and again again in the banquet of the Bible. These are the desires that characterize the new family of God. We have a new DNA, a new motivation to rid ourselves of those things that will destroy love in a community, and a new craving now to taste the Lord's goodness as we open our ears to his word. That's who we are. We are a new family with these new desires. But Peter now shifts the metaphor away from the nursery and to the building site And we see that we're a new family built on Christ. Now, before we read these verses, I want to remind you of the context into which Peter is writing. The people Peter is writing to are Christian believers scattered across what is now northern Turkey. And because they're Christians, they no longer belong to the world. They're strangers and exiles. They're not at home here. And that's not an easy place for Christian believers to find themselves. It's unsettling. There are trials and temptations that they didn't have to face before. They're wondering if it's worth carrying on, especially as the pressure mounts against them. And that's why these verses are so helpful to them and to us, because they teach us that even though believers are scattered in the world, we've been gathered by Christ. And even though we are strangers in the world, we are chosen by God. Let's look at these verses and allow God to teach us who we really are. Have a look at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, throughout these verses, there's an interplay between Jesus and his people. What's true of Jesus? The things that are said of Jesus are also true of his people. Living stones, chosen and precious, honoured by God. These are all things that are true of Jesus before then they're true of his people. So I want to just take a run through these verses and think first about Jesus. What do we learn about him? Well, verse 4, he is the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. I think here is the big surprise of these verses in 1 Peter. The Jesus that the world ignores and rejects is the same person, the very person, who stands at the centre of God's salvation plan. And Peter captures it in the language of the stone. Just glance with me at verses 6 and 7 and 8. You'll see that we have three separate verses with three different Old Testament quotations, all mentioning this stone. In fact, there are only three Old Testament passages um, at all that mention um, the stone. And Peter quotes them all and applies them all to Jesus. He's demonstrating um, what we saw in the middle of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, when Peter said the Old Testament prophesied the sufferings and glory of Jesus. I wonder if you remember that. Well, he's demonstrating that here by applying these Old Testament passages to the Lord Jesus. So let's look at the first one in verse 6, a quotation from Isaiah 28. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now in Isaiah 28, where this verse is quoted from, there's a movement between hope and judgment. It's really a a movement that we see throughout the book of Isaiah, between hope and judgment. And in the context of judgment in chapter 28, we have this ray of light. God promises to lay a stone in Zion. And that stone will be a place of eternal refuge. The one who trusts in this stone will never be put to shame. And Peter takes that language from Isaiah and says, Isaiah was prophesying of the Lord Jesus. He is God's chosen and precious cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone was the most important stone in an ancient building project. The one uh, stone which was laid and then um, everything else was sort of laid um, Around that, on top of that, everything was built upon this stone. Without it, there was no building project. And that is what Jesus is to God's plan of salvation. Without him, there's no project. The builders just can't get started. Without him, there's no people of God. He's God's chosen cornerstone. But not everyone sees that, and not everyone treats him like that. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So in verse 7, in our second quote from the Old Testament, we have a quotation from Psalm 118. And here the builders have found a stone They've given it one glance and they've thought, nah, we don't want that for our building project, reject it. And that's what people have done to Jesus. They've looked at him, they've examined him, they've considered him and thought, worthless, unimportant, not worth a second glance. 
Isn't that how millions of people in our world view Jesus? An insignificant person who can, we can do away with and not pay a moment's thought. And isn't that how mankind treated Jesus when he was born into our world? Just think as he reached the end of his life, he was rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. He was rejected by the Gentile crowds. He was rejected by the Roman rulers. He was even rejected by his closest friends. So complete was his rejection that he was crucified on a Roman cross. But Peter says this same stone, this same Jesus who was rejected by mankind has become the capstone. Or as we see in the, the footnote down at the bottom, the cornerstone, it could be translated uh, either of those ways. Whichever it is, he's the, now the foundational stone in God's salvation plan. The rejected Jesus is also the risen Jesus. Not a dead stone, but a living stone. And God has placed him in the path of every person in this world. You see, our world might try and sidestep Jesus. They might try and ignore Jesus. They might try and push Jesus to the margins. They might try and get on with their own human building project without him. But in God's plans, do you see, Jesus is front and center. And how we respond to him is the most important decision we will ever face in life. Now, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your trust in Jesus, then you need to know this. Your response to him will determine your eternal future. Either you will stumble over him and fall under the judgment of God, or you can trust in him as the only place of eternal refuge. But the reality is not everyone in our world does see Jesus this way. And the end of verse 8 tells us why. Have a look at the end of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Now, do you see, end of verse 8, that the human decision and God's decision run side by side in one verse. People disobey the message. That is a deliberate decision that they make. People choose to reject Jesus as their king. They don't see him as the risen, glorious God that he is. They don't see Jesus as God sees Jesus, and so they disobey the message. But alongside that in verse 8 is also the deliberate decision of God. Those who reject the message, Peter says, were destined to do so. Now, I know this can be a hard teaching to wrap our heads around, but it really is the other side of the coin to what we've been seeing in 1 Peter so far. If some are chosen by God to receive mercy and to inherit salvation, something we've seen in the letter again and again, then that means some are not chosen, some are not shown Mercy. Some are rejected by God, not given new birth. These truths in verse 8, human decision on the one hand, God's decision on the other hand, are always taught at full volume in the scriptures. Both are made clear, both are true. We're responsible for our decision to obey or disobey the message of Jesus, and God rules over it all. And I think for Peter's readers, this would bring real encouragement as they live as strangers in the world. You know, the rejection that they're facing as those who are strangers in the world, different, it's not out of the blue, and it's not as if God's plans are failing. This was God's plan all along, to lay a stone in the path of humanity who would divide the world. 
But this isn't the only way Peter wants to encourage Christian believers. He also wants to remind us that our our identity and our future is rock solid because it's built on the living stone. Let's come back to verse 5, which we've skipped over. Have a look at verse 5 and see the language. Sorry, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now here we come to a real a loading up of Old Testament ideas, don't we? And that's going to carry on into the, the later verses of our passage. And the dominant image in Peter's mind here is, is that of the temple. Do you see that? In the Old, Te- Old Testament, you might know, the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God made his dwelling. It was his spiritual house. It was the place where he would come and meet with his people. It was a physical building made of dead stones. And in that temple, priests from the tribe of Levi served Israel and served God by making sacrifices that were acceptable to God. But in verse 5, just look how things have changed with the coming of Jesus. Now the temple is not a physical place, but a people. Every person who comes to Jesus, the living stone, is built into this new people of God. We are God's spiritual house because we are the place where God now dwells by his Holy Spirit. And no longer do we have one tribe offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. Every believer is a priest. Every believer has been set apart by God and now lives a life that is pleasing to God. And I think this is what Christian exiles need to hear. Because the temptation we face is the temptation of shame and abandonment, and isolation. Christians are in various ways shamed by the world, aren't we? Our beliefs are made to seem outdated. We're made to feel unloving. We're tempted to be ashamed. Which is why we must allow Peter's words to sink into our hearts and to shape our realities. Verse 6, the one who trusts in Jesus will never be put to shame. If we have built our lives on Christ, the living stone, if we have come to him as our saviour, then we are in the place of honour. We follow the pattern of Jesus, rejected by the world, but chosen by God and precious to him. Scattered in the world, but gathered around Christ, indwelt by God's spirit, pleasing to God. That's who we are. But Peter knows that we need to hear that loud and clear. He knows that we need our new identity in Christ to work its way into our hearts in a profound way, which brings us to verses 9 and 10. We've seen that we are a new family built on Christ, finally with a new glorious purpose. Now in verses 9 and 10, Peter moves from those who disobey the message in verse 8 to now the people who come to Christ in verse 9. Have a look at these wonderful words in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Now, we don't have time to look back on all the Old Testament references and allusions here. Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 7, Isaiah 43, Hosea 1 and 2 and more. But what these verses do do for us is give us a wonderful identity kaleidoscope. Every identity marker that belonged to Israel in the Old Testament now comes funneled down through Christ to his New Testament people. The scattered Christians who are across Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, the Christians who are being slandered, persecuted, rejected by the world. Peter says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are the people who belong to God. What wonderful truths for these scattered Christians to hear. But also how difficult to believe. This is not how things seem in our world, is it? Christians don't appear to be winning in life. We don't look like the most privileged people in the world. But Peter says that's who we are. And we need to remember that what God says about our identity is the most true thing about us. We are his chosen people, not because of our works, not because of anything we've done, but because of his mercy, verse 10. Not because we loved him, but because he loved us. He has chosen for himself a people from all races, ethnicities, and languages. And he has brought us to his son, the Lord Jesus, and he has made us his own. This is who we are right now. Not you will be these things. Not you can be these things if you try a bit harder, but you are these things right now. And God has done this for a very important reason. He's chosen his people for a very special purpose so that his glory might be made known in our world. Now this is captured by that phrase, royal priesthood, in verse 9. In Exodus 19, the whole nation of Israel who had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt were set apart as God's royal priesthood. And Israel's role as um, God's royal priesthood was to represent God to the world. That's what priests did. They were representatives. So the, the nation of Israel were to represent God to the nations around them, telling the nations what God is like and what he has done. That's what priests are there for. Through their holiness, through their words, Israel were to make God's glory known to the nations. But do you see now how Peter redefines the people of God around the cornerstone? And he says to us, if you're part of this people who belong to Jesus, who have come to him and have been built by God into this new people, then God has called you out of the world for the sake of the world. Not to shrink back into a holy huddle, but to promote God's glory among the nations. We see it clearly in verse 9. Verse 9, you are a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Our world was created for the glory of God. The new creation will radiate the glory of God forevermore. And God's people now are to spread that glory far and wide as we tell others what God has done whether we have a hearing in the world or not, whether we are liked for it or not, whether our message is appreciated or not, we are the people who know God and therefore we are the people who have been called to make him known to others. I don't know about you, but I find it scary to open my mouth and tell other people about Jesus. 
And usually the reason for that is because I'm worried about the social shame or the potential rejection from those that I'm speaking to. I'm worried what my friends and family might think if they knew what I believed. But verse 9 helps me to realise what we're doing when we speak about Jesus. We're declaring the excellencies of our God to a world that needs to know him. Telling the world what he's done. And as someone who belongs to this wonderful community that he is building, that is exactly what I want to do. C.S. Lewis helps us understand this when he writes on the idea of praise. You might have um, heard this quote. He writes this. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. We all know the experience of that, don't we? We eat some good food and we want others to taste it too. Or we watch a brilliant film and we say to others, come around and watch it with me because we want to see the reaction. Or we hear a piece of music that captures us and we want to play that um, in the car to others. The act of praise expresses and completes our enjoyment of the thing, doesn't it? And the same is true when we declare the praises of God. We have tasted his goodness. We have experienced his salvation. Who we are has fundamentally changed. And so we want God to give us words to express to others our praise of him in the world. That's what we're doing as we speak about Jesus, declaring God's praises to a world that needs to know him. Dear brothers and sisters, we need to remember from these verses who we are. We are a new family built on the Lord Jesus Christ with a glorious purpose. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this is who you can be too. Part of the precious people of God by his mercy as you trust in Jesus, the living stone. As we finish, I want to leave you with two prayers to pray in light of this passage, two prayers that I want to pray for myself that I have been praying as I've been reading 1 Peter this week and prayers that I'd love us to pray as a church family. The first one is this, Lord, may we not be ashamed. Lord, may we not be ashamed. Shame can cripple our Christian lives. It can crush our witness to Jesus. And you might be feeling the the pressure of that at the moment, maybe the pressure in the classroom Um, at school and you found yourself just longing for the half-term break that is coming because it's really hard to be a Christian at school. You might feel the pressure in conversations in the corridors of your halls at university or perhaps the gathering over coffee in the office. We already feel strange as believers and we try all we can uh, to not feel any stranger and all too often that means shrinking back and hiding away. But into that fear comes a word from God in 1 Peter saying to us, you are in the place of honour. You will never be put to shame as one of my people. Yes, the world may side against you like they did against Jesus. Yes, you might be ridiculed. Yes, you might be isolated. But you are on the right side of history and you will be on the right side of eternity. You are the most privileged, honoured group of people in the entire world. And so, Lord, may we not be ashamed of who we are. Second prayer that I'd love us to pray is this one. Lord, may we not stay silent. The fear of shame can lead us to a place of silence, can't it? But our identity in Christ should lead us to a place of praise. This is what we've been saved for. This is what we've been chosen for, to be the only people on earth 
who can declare the glory of God and the wonder of his salvation to a world in darkness. Who are you? Who are we? We are the people of Christ, chosen, honoured, precious. And so as Peter says later in his letter, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 